Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, we're kicking off our series called Questions for God, and as Gavin mentioned before, the way that we, um, we came to the three questions that we're going through over the next few weeks was by asking a bunch of friends and family who are unconvinced about uh, the claims of Jesus, if you had one question for God, what would it be? And a bunch came back together that were questions like, how do I live a meaningful life? How do I kind of live, you know, my, be true to myself? How is it, what's the point of all this? And we kind of bundled all of those together into one big question, which was, why are we here? What's the purpose? What's it all about? And so that's what we're going to kick off with today, and it's a reasonably fitting one to start a series called Questions for God on, because really, I guess that's, that's the chief question of them all. And is the case that if you haven't asked that question before, that you probably should have. It is the case that, that really, it's only kind of early in life or in adolescence where we put off questions like that. As we grow up, we really want to ask questions like that and have, some, and have a significant answer. I don't know how it was for you, but my teenage years were spent mostly trying to avoid boredom. If you were to ask me at the time to articulate what the point of life was, I wouldn't have had much of an answer, but I was reasonably sure that a big part of it was avoiding being bored. And so like for many teenage boys, most of my weekends were spent doing whatever I could to avoid boredom. On one particular weekend, my, my dad was about to head down to Canberra in the lead up to the weekend. And at that time, I don't know if it's still the case, but Canberra at that point was basically kind of the, the, the centre of the world for teenage delinquency. It was, the one place, it was the one place in Australia where they would sell fireworks to a baby. Just anyone who had cash could buy the stuff. And so we knew my dad was going down, and so we hatched a plan to pull all our cash together. And I was going to get down to Canberra and, and come back with a duffel bag full of just whatever I could get. And um, the, the first part of the plan was how to, get, how to convince dad to take me with him. And so I said to my dad, something that I'd never said before, I said, Dad, I'm really interested in what you do for work, and I'd love to know what it's all about. Would it be cool if I came with you on a work trip to Canberra? And he gave me that loving fatherly look of like, I don't, I don't know what you're up to, but all right, you know, a bit of father-son time. And so away we went, and during the first kind of seminar that he was leading, I ducked out around the corner and found really easily a firework. You couldn't trip over without falling on a firework shop at that point. I don't know what was going on in Canberra. They, just, they were just desperate to get people in there. They're like, look, you can do whatever you want here. You can, like, whatever. So anyway, I, I went in there, and I had like a, a cadet bag, and I just bought as much fireworks as I I stuffed the whole thing full. And dad, it never occurred to Dad to ask me why it was that the bag was so empty on the way down and so full on the way back. But anyway, I got away with it. I remember on the Friday night getting back to, to the group of, of um, fellas and I opened up this bag and it was just, everyone just beheld this cachet of weapons that we had. I'm like, what are we going to do with this stuff? And so naturally the first thing we thought of was, well, just 
put them in letterboxes and see what happens. You know, just see, see how it goes. I hope you still like me at the end of this story. We, there is a point to this. And so we did that for a bit, but that got a bit boring. And we thought, how do you, kinda, how do you level up on this? We thought, I know what we'll do. We'll create an ambush situation where there was a, a road nearby us, a main sort of drag, and then some bushland next to it. And so the plan was to, to run out, put the fireworks in the middle of the road, and then when the cars stopped, to egg them. And so that's what we did. And so we were doing this for like a little while, but on about the fourth or fifth car, one driver, I don't know why, took objection to it and got just mad as a cut snake, ran out of the car, shouting into the darkness of the bushland, like that sort of thing. But we had a plan. We had an exit route back to my mate's house all through the bush. There was no way we were going to get caught. So we went back there, hung out there for an hour and a half till everything cooled down. And then we were taking the path back to my place when as we were going along the way, suddenly one of us felt two strong hands on the shoulders and a guy go, oi, he said, have you kids been egging cars? And we all froze and panicked. And I took initiative to kind of get us out of the situation. I said, yeah, I think I saw some primary school kids up that way doing it. And I think, I'm sure he didn't believe us, but he didn't have enough evidence to convict us on the spot. And so just let us go. And so we, we narrowly avoided a punch in the face, which is probably what we needed most as obnoxious teens. And then Monday morning came the time for swapping stories. And we were sharing all of this about what had happened. And there was one guy in our group, Stu, who was a gentle ginger. And he was very, very quiet. And, uh, and it only came out probably six, ten months later that the reason he went so quiet was because that was his dad. But worse than that, he told us he was driving, that his dad was driving his brother's car. And when he told us that, all our hearts skipped a beat. Because while Stu was a gentle ginger, his brother was the one who gave gingers the reputation for being fiery. He was a psycho. And we narrowly avoided the absolute beating of our lives. So him, him keeping quiet about that was a huge favor. But the, it begs the question, and that was one of many weekends, why is it that we would risk that just to avoid being bored. Well, the truth was, for, for many teens, it's the same thing. There, is, there seems to be no greater purpose to life than just to avoid being bored. I've got nothing really to do. There's no great cause that I want to throw myself into. I'm just, I'm just going to do stuff and keep myself entertained. But the truth is that all of us have to and should do grow out of that phase. You can't live like that. That's not a permanent way to live. That's not much of a life to live. At some point, all of us want something to throw our lives into, something that's actually meaningful where you can say, my life has been worth living because I threw it into something that mattered, something other than just living for myself and trying to avoid being bored. And it doesn't, you don't have to have had a brush with death to have asked this question that deeply, but it certainly helps. I don't know if you know the story of, um, of the Beaconsfield mining incident. But at 9.26 on the 25th of April in 2006, in Beaconsfield, Larry Knight, Brant Webb and Todd Russell were mining almost a kilometre underground when there was an earthquake registering 2.2 on the Richter scale that caused a 15 metre slide and trapped them exactly where they were. Larry Knight died instantly in the first rockfall, but the others were trapped in this tiny underground cavern with a roof over them, which was basically just rocks caught in mutual suspension. And they were stuck there. The next morning at 7.22, as the rescue efforts began, Larry Knight's body was discovered and they started making an effort to reach the remaining trapped miners, the two who were left in there. They started blasting away the rock 
And Brant Webb was so sure that he was going to die that every time they heard a blast, he wrote down the time on his hand so that when they found his body, they would know which was the blast that finally killed them. But they survived the blasting, and after that, they began to drill. And on the 1st of May, rescuers were able to get a 12-meter tube, just a PVC pipe, through to the men so that they could give them you know, communication devices, basic food and water, just stuff to keep them alive. By May 5, they drilled four meters, and by May 6, it seemed pretty imminent that they were going to survive and they were to be rescued. On the 9th of May, early in the morning, they, uh, the, the rescuers got through, and at 4.47 a.m., pulled the men out, and it was, it was national celebration. It was on every news outlet was covering it. People could not believe that these two men had survived it, Brant and Todd. But that really is just the beginning of the story. If you fast forward that story six years to 2012, Brant Webb, one of the survivors, is on one of, you know, what is at that point, the latest of a bunch of weight loss shows called Excess Baggage. And when he explains in his own words why he's on the show and how it is that he put on such an extraordinary amount of weight, he would say the main reason was the guilt that he felt. Anything that might seem strange, why would, why would someone feel guilty for surviving an accident that was absolutely not their fault? And the reason he explained was this, that people had risked their lives to save his life. They'd laid out their lives. They had people who had families. All these people nearly died to save his life. And he thought, what have I done with it? He tried a business. It failed. He tried to go into politics. That didn't work. He just felt like a, a loss of a man. And like all these people had given him this precious gift of life, he's like, what have I done with it? And it weighed on him heavily. Now, whether or not you've thought it through that deeply, there is a sense that our lives are precious and they're weighty and we need a purpose that's worth throwing them into. We're not here to just mark our time. That the gift of life is a precious thing. And we need something to sink it into. We want it to count. Nobody wants to get to the end of their life and think it was for nothing. Nobody wants to say, I just kind of marked my time and got to the end. We want to know that I, my life was worth something. I threw it into what mattered. And so because that's the case, I think in our culture we've thought through this question and there are a couple of I'd say, main solutions that we've come up with. Now, I know there's many more, but I think three of the biggest would be these three. The first one is to make the world a better place. The second one is to do something great. And the third one is to love someone great. There might be many more or other kind of capitulations of it, but I think if, if there were three big ones that when you ask around, people would say, it's probably going to come, one of those is going to come up. Make the world a better place. Do something great or love someone great. Those are, th are three things that would make a life worth living. And so let's get into the first one, and maybe the most obvious, make the world better. This one, I guess, is the most obvious because when you look around you and see all the problems in the world, you think, what could be a better way to spend your life than to leave the world in a better place than how you found it? To look around and think, look, if I could just say at the end of my days that I did something that was good, that actually helped people, that, um, that my life would actually be worth it. Throwing your life into making the world a better place would surely be a worthwhile thing. And so then the question becomes, well, if it's that obvious, why isn't that the answer? Why isn't it that when anyone asks what's life about, everyone says, make the world better straight away? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. And the first one is this. It requires sacrifice. It requires missing out on things in order to make things better. It requires missing out on opportunities. It requires missing out on comfort or lifestyle in order to do this. 
And in a society that's not really set up to reward self-sacrifice, that's a big call. Robert Kudner wrote a book called Everything for Sale, which is really about a, a culture like ours where it seems like you can put a money price on anything. And he was saying in this culture, self-sacrifice is a hard thing to get across the line with. He says, the person who volunteers time, who helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, who desists from littering when no one is looking, begins to feel like a sucker. That's his description of what life is like. That's one of the reasons why it's difficult to sink your life into making the world a better place because if you do, there's no guarantee that others will and they're going to cash in on an easier life and you kind of think, man, I'm starting to feel like a sucker. That's one thing. The second one is that it can be complicated. A few years ago, a couple of guys working in poverty alleviation wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And they describe in that book a bunch of scenarios where people have tried to help and haven't matched the right type of aid with the right type of situation and have actually made things worse. He talked about one church where every year they would go to a local, you know, in the States it would be kind of the equivalent of a housing commission and give Christmas presents to the kids. And some of the people doing it year on year started to get a little bit annoyed at the fact that the dads were often missing when they went there to do this. They were in the house, but they wouldn't come to the door and thank them or anything like that. And on further investigation, it became obvious as to the reason why. The reason was these men who weren't really providing enough for their houses felt humiliated by the fact that older, rich people were buying presents for their kids. And it was actually benching them in terms of their responsibilities. It wasn't helping, it was hurting. And so oftentimes, I mean, that's just one scenario. Oftentimes, when we think about making the world a better place, we think all the problems are so complicated and so multifaceted, it's so difficult to do. It often makes it difficult to know how it is that you would actually make the world a better place. But probably the biggest challenge is just recurring evil. That no matter how hard we try, things keep coming back. Slavery, fascism, Nazism, things that we thought were like polio kind of in the past and cured of, keep coming back and it's, it seems in some ways futile. H.G. Wells, the famous author and humanist, once wrote this kind of glowing assessment of humanity. He wrote this, he says, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. But he wrote this before the Second World War and after the Second World War had a much more sober assessment of humankind. He then wrote this, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. The idea that things as hard as we try seem to come back around. There's now more slaves than before slavery was abolished, that every time you solve one problem there are ten more, just builds this feeling of like it seems futile. That even if you were able to do something extraordinary, that it may well be undone within ten years or several decades of your doing it. And even that, that eventually the sun will swallow up the earth and all the inhabitants thereof. 
The idea of making the world better has, diff- has problems to it because of futility. It seems to keep creeping in and gnawing away at it. And for that reason, some people say, well, look, I, I leave that aside as my life purpose. I don't think that's going to be me. I don't think I've got the means or opportunities to do that. For me, it's about doing something great, just having something that I can hang my hat on. Now, whether that's something really extraordinary and that everyone would recognize or just being really excellent within your own field of work, just to do something great. Something at the end of your days, you can tell your grandkids, I did that and that was a great thing. And that's a common solution. But again, this one too has some problems with it. The first one is this, that not all of us are going to have the opportunity to do something great. My kids were watching Sesame Street a few years ago and a song came on called Change the World. And in it, they were saying, you can be anything. You can be an astronaut. And I didn't, I didn't want to bomb their party at the time. <laughs> but I don't know if you know how many people are in space right now. But I do, because there's a website called howmanypeopleareinspacerightnow.com. And it will tell you how many people. It's, just, it's the simplest website you could ever come up with. And right now, there are six. And from what I can gather, about every six months, like three go up and three come down. So that means out of 7 billion people on the planet, 6 get to go into space every year. Maybe, maybe 10 on a big year. <laughs> now it is the case that if we're being honest, if you're a kid and you want to be an astronaut, the odds are stacked against you. <laughs> it's going to be tough. It's going to be tricky. But let's say, it's, look, you don't want to do something that grand. Just do something great within your own field. But there's even an issue with that. Because the hard truth is that it seems to be the pattern that even people who have done great things don't seem to be satisfied with those great achievements. Recently, recently, like last night or the night before, we watched um, Free Solo, which is a documentary about uh, Alex Hanold. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, Alex Hanold, who, um, who free soloed, so he's climbed without ropes. This is rock climbing. El Capitan, which is like 3,500 feet. Just walking in a straight line for that long would be difficult, let alone like climbing up it. But he, um, that was his achievement and that's what he got done. And it's in, like, if you know anything about free soloing, it is one of the deadliest sports in the world. That most of the people who do it for any amount of time end up dying. And the reason for it is, I mean, you, you look at the climb that he does, from about three or four minutes into the climb, any mistake that you make is absolute certain death. Like not even, uh, like a close run thing or whatever, it is absolutely certain death. At one point he says, I realize from this point on, if I were to fall, my body will just explode. There's not even a chance of survival. And so then the question becomes, well, why, is he, why is he doing this? And if you've seen the documentary, it is, it is kind of sad. He talks about his upbringing. He's a pretty eccentric kind of person. He talks about his upbringing in what you would probably describe as a loveless household. He never heard the words, I love you, his mum says his dad was, would probably have now been diagnosed as Asperger's, but he was you know, not a very affectionate father. He passed away when Alex was 19. And he describes this household where there was not a lot of love and affection, and at the same time, there was a lot of talk about perfection. He remembered his mother saying things like, good enough never is. And things like that would kind of rattle around in his head. And he was saying, when he talked about free soloing, and particularly wanted to do something as dangerous as climb El Capitan, he said, if you, want, if you want to get as close to perfection as possible, if you want perfection, free soloing is as close as you can get. And looking at the docker, I think I know what he meant. Because the margins are so small for error, 
you basically have to execute a perfect climb from top to bottom if you want to just not die. Like you literally, there are no moments in the movie, sorry to spoil it for you, there are no moments where he almost slips and then grabs again because with the kind of margins he was dealing with, any slip would have meant certain death. So you have to execute a, a perfect climb. And he says at the end of it, you just feel perfect. Like for a split moment, he says, you feel like a, a, just a complete person. It's like all your faults, all your problems have evaporated. Like you have just done something perfect. But the problem is every time he does it, it just goes away again. Even at the end of the film, they're like, what are you going to do next? And then that afternoon, he says hangboarding, which is like his, his training, kind of chin-ups, using his fingers. He's going straight back to the next thing. Even people who have done something great find that once they do it, they have to do it again and again. And they do something great and then have to do something greater, or they do something great and then someone does it better and they have to do it again and again and again. The difficulty with making the world a better place is pressing up against futility. The difficulty of doing something great is that it's fleeting. It doesn't last. That sense of perfection evaporates. And so because of that, many have thought, well, look, I don't know if doing something great is kind of beyond me or whatever, but something that's within reach is just to love someone great. Just to find that one person to settle, you know what, if I could just do that, that would be enough for a life. And and, uh, one guy, Ernest Becker, has talked about this as the romantic solution and suggested that the reason that romantic relationships have such a high status in our culture is because long ago we left behind the idea that a meaningful life would be built on God And so we've looked for someone else, and the most obvious answer is a romantic relationship. He writes it in this way, Becker, from his book, um, Fear of Death, says he still needed, talking about humankind, uh, after, you know, leaving behind the idea of God, he still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to be specially good for something truly special. Also, he needed to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning and trust and gratitude. What we saw is the universal motive of the agape merger, love merger. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. He's saying the meaning to life becomes to just love one person. If I could just find that right person, it's like all my flaws would disappear, things would fit into their place, and our culture buys into that narrative. Singleness is kind of seen as like a modern purgatory. It's a a place where you wait until life really begins. That once you find someone... You might find meaning for life, but that is an incredible weight to put on another person. And this is one of the problems with this one, is that to, to, to look at another person, and no one would say this because they'd probably recommend you go to a counsellor, but no one would look at another person and say, I need you to be all my meaning, hope, significance, purpose, my redemption, renewal, you know, uh, to cover my past flaws and bring new hope for the future. I mean, you would never say that to someone. And yet implicitly, that can be the kind of weight that's put on a relationship. Like when I find that person, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. And it leads to disillusionment and disenchantment because really a person cannot fulfill that kind of weight. 
So what I want to put to you is looking at this in the passage that we read out before is that these are all good desires that really find their fulfillment in Jesus. That without him, they flounder and that's why we find them so difficult. Why they don't really fit as a purpose for life, as a reason for why we're here. And it's all here in just a few sentences in Colossians. Have a look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It'll come up on the screen for you there. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When it comes to finding a purpose for life, making the world better always, always pushes up against futility. Doing something great is always fleeting, and loving someone great always leads to disappointment. And yet in Jesus, all these things find their fulfillment. Looking at it in reverse order, what this passage says is that once you know Jesus, you love someone great, someone of whom there is no one greater. Here it says that all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything in the universe that you know of, visible or invisible, physical, non-physical, from quarks through to galaxies, from love through to sadness, all of it Jesus has created and all of it is for him and by him. We have a maker and one who knows us and wants to be in relationship with us. And that matters. It matters what your origin story is. I don't, know, have you se- in, I don't know when they come. It seems to be at the beginning of the year, but Ancestry.com always has a big push somewhere around, like, somewhere around when the tennis is on in January. And I'm, not sure, I'm not sure why, whether it's because a lot of old people... I like the tennis, but whether it's because a lot of old people do it or not. But just to get a quick sample, a quick show of hands, who knows what I'm talking about when I talk about Ancestry.com? All right. Who... When you've seen the ad and they're offering a month free trial, who has at least been tempted to give it a crack and to find out what your family tree would be? Uh, yeah, I think if you're honest, there's probably a few more than that. But the, re- the reason it's kind of like tantalizing is you think, man, what if there's someone really interesting in my family tree? What if I'm like, what if I'm royalty or whatever it is? And it's not even the sense of, I don't think most people are thinking that I've got, there's like an inheritance stashed away for me somewhere. There's nothing really that's going to impact life. You just, you kind of want to know who's in your family tree and what's in your background. Why? Why would we care? If it's not going to change what you do tomorrow, why would we care what our family tree was? I think we care because it explains things about you. It explains things about you physically, how you look, but also your personality and your tendencies. It it matters where you come from because it affects who you are now. Colossians 1 is saying that we were made by a God who loves us, who made all things, and all things were made for Him and by Him. That you are, you are known and made by a God who wants to be in relationship with you. And He's the one on whom the weight of our existence will fall. We were made by Him and we were made for Him. And so without Him, we will never be able to find a meaningful life that lasts. That would explain why some of these great ideas don't seem to work out in reality. They're missing the one that we were made for. And more than that, he can bear the weight 
that another person can't. When you know Jesus, you love someone truly great, not just another human that you're trying to turn into a God. Look at the second half of the quote from Becker and how he explains it. He says, After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. Romantic relationships can't do this. That is a God-sized hole for them to try and fill, but God can. The claim of the scripture is that you are made by Jesus and for Jesus, and without him, there will always be something missing that no human can fulfill. But it also leads us to our second point, that once you know Jesus, something great has been done for you. The purpose of life is not to do something great, but to know that something great has been done for you. Flipping back to that documentary, Free Solo, what, what he really wanted was to do something so inequivocally great that, that, that he would be able to say, it makes up for all my past flaws. That you could do one, in one single act, you could do something so extraordinary that it would make up for everything else that you've done in your life. I mean, if you've seen any, um, what's his name, Clint Eastwood movie, they're always that, right? He's like, he's shot up a bunch of people, but finally in the end, he's going to actually shoot some bad guys for once. And he'll die doing it and one last act of redemption to make up for all his racist tirades and whatever from the rest of his life, right? Every single like Clint Eastwood movie. But there's a theme to that, right? This belief that, man, if I could just do one great heroic act, it could make up for everything else in life. But it doesn't. It just papers over it for a time. But the claim of Colossians is that Jesus did one great heroic act, and it changed you completely. Look at what it says in Colossians 1, 19 to 20. It says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The claim is that we were made for Jesus and by Jesus, that we rejected him. The Bible calls that sin. We walked away from him. The punishment for that was death. And Jesus, in a heroic act of redemption, died on our behalf and made peace by the blood of the cross. When you know Jesus, you know that something great has been done for you. You don't have to do something great to prove yourself. He will do it, and it washes you completely clean. It makes up for all sin, for all mistakes, for all the lack of meaning, whatever you want to say. It is all washed away because of the cross. If you are right before God, you are right down to your very core. And lastly, once you know Jesus, you know that he will make the world a better place. Again, in this passage, look at what he says. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. It says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There is a point in a day when he will fix all wrongs and make them right, where he will establish justice once and for all. And until that day, he's given us the opportunity to, to have our sins forgiven to be brought back in a right relationship with him. And on that day, he'll make all sad things come untrue, as one author has written. He is the one who will make it better. But the pressure is off us to do that, so we are free to do good like our King and Savior Jesus did and to not be worn down by the futility of knowing that some things that we do will be eventually undone because one day he will make it right. William Wilberforce 
It was a man who was instrumental in the abolition of slavery. And he was a deeply Christian man who followed Jesus his whole life. He set himself two tasks in life, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of manners in England, which I know sounds funny. One sounds really extraordinary. The other one sounds like, I don't know, tea time etiquette or something. He kind of, it meant, it's old English, so he kind of meant the idea of like getting away with, like getting rid of public execution and all that kind of stuff. But if, if he were, I suspect, and I'm just hypothesizing now, but I suspect if he knew that there was now more, uh, more people in slavery than before he'd worked so hard to abolish it, I don't think he would be that surprised. He knew about the condition of humankind and of our sinful tendencies. And I think even, if, even knowing that, he would have lived life exactly the same way because he felt called in response to what Jesus had done to love others in the same way. He said it this way. He said, True Christians consider themselves not as satisfying some rigorous creditor but is discharging a great debt of gratitude. What he did, knowing full well that God would restore all things one day, he worked even harder to love others in the same way that he had been loved by God, and it transformed his life. In Jesus, all these things find their right and fitting purpose. I'm going to pray that we would see that clearly today. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you're a good and loving God. We praise you that you are the one in whom all meaning and purpose is found. We praise you that Jesus is the one that we are called to love with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. That he is the one who has done something great for us, that he is the one that will make the world better. And until then, we pray that we will trust and hope in him. And Father, we pray that as we continue to wrestle with these deep questions over the next few weeks, that you would open our hearts and minds to see your glory in the gospel. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.